Would you pray with me? Father, in the next few moments as we look into your word, God, we ask that you would do a work in us. Pray that uh, we would leave these doors um, different than the way we came in this morning. Regardless of what our expectations were this morning, we pray that this would be a time of encountering you in your passage. So as I open my mouth and we open your word, may they say the same thing. Um, And I pray that our hearts would be uh, cut and healed and made better uh, so that we can worship you. Um, We need your grace for that to happen. And we we ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, If you don't have a Bible, I'd like to ask you to slip your hand up so we can get one to you. And we want to make sure that we're together, especially today, because we're going to... um, Definitely look at a couple of passages. We're mainly going to be in Matthew, though. And um, just one over here for Carol. Um, This series that we're starting in Matthew, we're heading towards the end of Matthew. And Jesus uh, has finished his trek toward Jerusalem, and he's entering Jerusalem. And again, we're hit with a theme that is a recurring theme, kind of, smacking us again and again throughout Matthew and our journey through Matthew the past couple of years, um, that, it's, that it's very easy to be f- a faithful church attender and miss what it's really all about. Um, this is one of Matthew's recurring sub-themes. It just comes up again and again. And so, this is a question we need to ask ourselves, you know, why do I go to church? In fact, you can ask it this way. If somebody were to ask you this week, why should I go with you to church next Sunday? If they were to ask you, why should, give me a reason, why should I go with you to church? What are the first one, two, or three things that pop into your mind? Might you say, well, because the people are really nice. They're really good people. Oh, you're going to love the people. Or maybe you mentioned the music. Oh, you know, John and the worship team, they just, they practice so hard and you can tell because it just, it's so good, you're going to love it. You're going to love the music. Maybe it's the preaching. Maybe it's the, the children's ministry that we have. Whatever it is, there are a lot of reasons why we enjoy church, but those aren't the, the main thing. None of those reasons are the main reason. Those reasons might help you convince the person to come check it out but it's not really why they need Jesus. It's not really why they need church. So why is it? What is the real reason? We're gonna, let's dive into that. And if you can turn with me to Matthew, we're going to look at chapter 21, the first few verses of chapter 21. It's clear that Matthew certainly has Not one agenda, but several. Uh, This is one of his primary goals. That as you finish reading the book of Matthew, you understand what this is all about. That you you don't become like a Pharisee. You don't become like a, a person who's religious and kind of knows a lot of rules and knows a lot of verses. And really you miss the entire thing. Matthew wants to make sure that when you read this account of Jesus' life and ministry that you walk away with a clear understanding of what church is about, what it means to follow Jesus, and he drives it home again with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem 
Pick it up with me in verse 1. Matthew 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus sort of flexes his um, um, divine muscles a little bit. You guys are going to go, you're going to walk into, you're going to see a colt tied there, and, and you're going to take it. And if somebody comes out and says, hey, what are you doing with my colt? Just say, hey, the Lord needs it. And he's going to be cool with that. So go do it. Okay, you know. Um, we're not sure exactly how that worked, but Matthew has already shown us so many times that God calms a storm, calms a sea, casts out demons, heals blind people. It's like at this point, he doesn't want to try to explain it. Just take it for fact that he's in charge of these things. He knows these things. He's revealed uh, these things by the Father. And so this is divinely appointed. Um, and the disciples go and they do it. They bring this, and it's so that this passage is fulfilled from Zechariah 9. And then it says that the crowds were, the city was stirred up. Jerusalem was stirred up. Now, a lot of these people from the, in the crowds are from Galilee. They're not from Jerusalem. Some of them are, but a lot of them are, they're all, they're pilgrimaging toward Jerusalem. But the city is seeing all this stir. They're used to people showing up. Well, what is all the hubbub about? They see that it's about a guy riding on a donkey coming in, and people are throwing cloaks in front of him. People are throwing, cutting branches down and uh, <laughs> ruining Jerusalem property to <laughs> throw this stuff in front of it so that he walks in it, like laying out the red carpet treatment for the one that they're proclaiming as, as, as king, as the one they're, they're expecting. And so the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And that's Matthew's basic question throughout the Gospel that he wants you to come away with. Who is Jesus? Who is He? What do you do with Him? Why do you need Him? And the way you answer that question will determine whether you're one of the types of people who kind of does church and is into the churchy stuff and into the traditional stuff but then one day you stand before the Lord and you're like, hi. And he goes, who are you? Are you going to be one of those guys? that You, you think you're a sheep, actually you're a goat? Or are you going to be one of the ones that really follows? Um, 
So this question is important. So what we want to do is we're going to look at a couple of background things. What is this crowd saying? What is this crowd expecting? What is this crowd proclaiming as they see Jesus walking in? And so we see that in verse 4, Matthew tells us all this that they were doing, uh, taking the goat or taking the, uh, the donkey and the colt uh, for Jesus to ride in on. Jesus did that to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So we have a, a couple of verses, Zechariah chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. Uh, we're going to put that on the screen. And it goes like this. This is uh, prophet Zechariah, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah is putting this prophecy out there so they know that this king is going to come, this king that's going to restore, this king that's going to save, and he's going to come, he's going to come humble. He's not going to ride in on a, on a white war horse with a sword at his side. He's going to come in meek and mild and tender and humble. And he's going to bring salvation. Uh, later in that chapter, verse 16, it says, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. So, Guys, this is what they do their devotionals in. Okay, their their morning devotionals. Okay, they'd open up and you know when they read Zechariah, they're reading about the one that's going to come, and he's going to come, and he's going to come on a on a donkey, and he's going to come humble, and uh, with all the other verses that they that talk about this coming King and how he's going to change the world. They're expecting salvation, and so look at verse nine of chapter twenty-one, Matthew twenty-one nine. The crowds went before him, and here's what they were shouting. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, what does the word Hosanna mean? That's a, that's a Hebrew word. And the, the, the best reference that we have is Psalm 118. We'll put that one up there. In Psalm 118, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. That phrase, save us, that's Hosanna. Just translated into English. Save us. Save now, save please. Different translations do it differently. It's a, declar- a proclamation that the Lord will save, that He will save, and it's also a request to save. Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless You from the house of the Lord. And so, as soon as the request is made, save us, the next line says, blessed is He who comes. In other words, someone is going to come who answers this request. We're crying out to God to save us, and God is sending someone who's going to come. Zechariah gave some details. He's going to come on a donkey. He's going to come humble. And so the crowds are recognizing that this is the son of David, verse 9. He's the one. He's the king in the lineage of David. We know he's the king who's to come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest. They're saying, here's the one that's come to save us. Here's the Savior. Here's the King that comes to save His people. And they recognize that. And so the city is going, wait, who is this? They're like, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth. And He fulfills these passages in a very specific way. The problem here is that in five days from now, five days from this passage, 
those crowds are nowhere to be found. Five days from this entrance, where they're throwing their shirt for the donkey to walk on top of, they're cutting branches and throwing it down on the floor for him, and they're shouting, save us, he's the Savior, he's the one. Five days later, those shouts aren't, aren't heard. A different shout is heard. We want Barabbas. A different shout is heard. Crucify him. How do you get from this to that in five days? How, how do they miss it that bad? They're, they're, caught, they're saying he's the Savior. They're saying he's the one. They're saying he's the son of David. And yet five days later, <laughs> there's no support at all. His small band of disciples that he poured hours and invested time into, they're disbanded, they're scattered. They're denying Christ. One of them betrays him for some coins. So how do we get from that to this? It's because they were expecting a Savior, but they were expecting a certain kind of Savior. They wanted Jesus. They wanted a certain version of Jesus. And when it didn't pan out to be the version of Jesus that they wanted, they bailed. What kind of Jesus did they want? Now, it's real easy to just pick on them, right? Like, look, they were just morons. They obviously didn't read their Bible. No, they did read their Bible. And in fact, I would love for you to turn to Zechariah. And I want us to camp out a little bit in a different chapter. Not chapter 9, but chapter 14. And if you have one of our Bibles, it's page 799. If you don't have one of our Bibles, then good luck finding Zechariah. No, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. Okay. What I want to do is read a few of these verses. The verses that they would look at as they're thinking of this one that's going to come. This one that was spoken of in chapter 9. In Zechariah 14. It goes like this. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. In other words, you're going to get pillaged, Jerusalem. And people are going to take all your stuff and divide it. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the, sh- and the city shall be taken. And the houses plundered. And the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. That's a pretty desperate situation. Verse 3 comes the promise. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations when He fights on a day of battle. On that day, His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Sound like the book of Revelation a little bit? On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day, one day, which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer 
as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. That's, that's when people clap when they're reading that. that. That's when they shout amen. And then here comes Jesus. Isaiah said the one that's going to come, people are, the blind people are going to see. He's healing blind people. The lame people are going to walk. Lame people are walking. He's able to teach with authority that is like no other. I mean, he's calming the seas. He's doing all kinds of stuff that points to the the fact that this guy, you know, we have to pay attention to this guy. Then he enters into Jerusalem. Back in Matthew chapter 21, you remember that first line that says, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. I mean, this is the guy that's going to come and when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is going to split in half and all the people that occupy Israel, oppress Israel, mess with Israel are all going to get their teeth kicked in. Caesar, Rome, all the barbarians in the outlying land, it doesn't matter. They're all going to have to surrender to Jesus Christ's lordship and kingship because he's the one. Now you have a people that are oppressed in a couple of different ways. They're oppressed by other people and they're oppressed by their own people. You know, Rome has this occupation. And then you got a guy like, you know, Herod and his son that just kill people at, at will. And they're desperate for change. They're desperate for peace. And they're not wrong for expecting it because God promised it. He promised that he was going to come and bring peace. He promised that Jesus was going to come and, 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 and touch down and there's going to be earthquakes and angels everywhere and he's just going to restore things. And so this is what they want. This is what they're longing for. They do read their Bibles. They wanted physical healing. And some of them got it when Jesus touched them. They wanted material blessings. They wanted poverty to end. They wanted societal blessings so that there isn't this occupation anymore and uh, crazy people in charge. They want Jesus to reign Like Zechariah 14 says, the problem is that all of those maladies, poverty, sickness, uh, evil governments, wars, all of those maladies are symptoms of something else, something that's deeper. They're a result of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is separation from God. That deeper problem is spiritual lostness. That we're not connected with our Father. There's a rift between us and God. They don't want to talk about that rift. They just want to get to the results. We, I, I just want healing. I just want a better job. I just want, I just want to walk out the door and not feel bad for being a, a Jew. I, I just want to be able to, to live in a land of peace. What happened to the flowing milk and honey? What happened to all these promises of the Old Testament? I just want everything to be nice. I want everything to work. I want to get a promotion at my job. I want my kids to be healthy. But all of that skips over a deeper problem. So these people, these crowds, they wanted a Savior. But they didn't want salvation from sin. They wanted salvation from Roman occupation. They wanted salvation from bad harvests. They wanted uh, salvation from being sick, from being poor. And so they wanted a certain version of Jesus. A Jesus that kind of fast forwards to the end. A Jesus that just skips ahead to when Jesus sits on the throne and makes everything nice without recognizing the problem. 
The problem in the Garden of Eden was not that God got overthrown and he needs to fight for his throne back. The problem was that man sinned and therefore was separated from God. That's the issue that needs to be resolved. Not wars, not sicknesses, not diseases, not job loss. Sin. And so when they're saying, Hosanna, save us, they're saying, save us politically, save us physically, save us materially. But they're not thinking, save us from sin. So he's a disappointing Jesus. He's a disappointing king. He's not all he cracked out, you know, supposed to be. And so five days later, it's crucify him, end his life. He's a blasphemer. He's a fake. And it's because they wanted success rather than salvation. It's because they wanted physical success or monetary success rather than a substitute that would come and be sacrificed for them. They wanted things to be made right without realizing they need to be made righteous. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came in the humility that He came to fulfill those Old Testament prophecies, not because they were false prophecies. He will come and restore His kingdom. He will come and reign just like Zechariah described. And that's a little bit of a scary version of Jesus. I mean, when you read, when you read Revelation and Jesus is coming into town, He doesn't look like the rosy-cheeked, you know, 70s portrait version that, that hung in Grandma's living room. He, 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 just, he doesn't look like that. But Jesus came first in humility. He comes to conquer later. First, He comes in humility to be a sacrifice, to be a substitute, because we all deserve to die in our sin. The wages of sin is death. He takes the death for us. And so He reigns in that way. And that's not so different from today. These crowds are not so different from the crowds that flock to Jesus today. You know, we tend to think there's crowds that follow Jesus and people that are like atheists, they hate religion. But those aren't the people that ticked off Jesus in his ministry. The people that ticked off Jesus and he got into constant debates with were the people that were religious but missed him. In John 6, it tells us that all kinds of crowds follow him. He just fed the crowd, you know, the 5,000 with multiplying bread and all that stuff. And they're following him, they're asking him for a sign. And he's like, you need to eat my flesh and you need to drink my blood. What? Yeah, that's what you need to do. And the disciples are like, yeah, what he said. And they pull him aside, they're like, what? What do you mean by that? He's like, are you going to leave? Are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave too? No, where else can we go? All right, so you get it, you know. But all kinds of people left. Jesus intentionally gave a hard teaching so that people walk away. He knew what was in the heart of man. And so crowds flocked to Jesus when he was on earth. Crowds flocked to Jesus now. Now, how many people do you know say, hey, okay, I'm looking for a church, I'm looking for a church. Which is the biggest one? Let me go to that one. We just, we just want big. We just want more. Where are all the crowds flocking to? You turn on the TV, and the preacher's preaching garbage. He's preaching garbage, and then the, the camera pans around, and there's thousands and thousands of people. Doesn't your heart break? They're not getting Jesus. They're getting a version of Jesus, a Jesus that will heal you if you give enough money to the church. It's not so different today. I remember one time hearing uh, Tony Campolo, uh, a minister, 
uh, talk about his experience when he, 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 he used to walk into white churches and see portraits of a white Jesus on, on the walls. And then he'd walk into black churches and see portraits of a black Jesus on the walls. And he's like, what, what's going on here? What's going on is we make God into our own image. We want Jesus to be a, a suburban Jesus, a Jesus that is a, a palatable Jesus, a Jesus that is easy to invite friends to come and enjoy, a Jesus that will promise healing, a Jesus that will fix your marriage and fix things in your life and make you feel good, a Jesus whose quotes make a nice t-shirt or a nice meme on Facebook, a Jesus that when you quote him enough helps you raise your kids with some good solid foundations, an ethical Jesus, a moral Jesus. We're reminded when uh, Aaron shared this experience on the airplane with the lady sat next to him. Oh, Jesus, I like. I may be misquoting, right? But not king. Not, not king. Not king, Jesus. What is that? These crowds wanted a certain kind of Jesus. When they discovered that his mission wasn't what they wanted, they backed off and they turned. I remember a friend of mine whose uncle owned some stores in Chicago. He was trying to teach him some basic rules of business. And he said, rule number one, man, you got to learn customers are fickle. I mean, there's no brand loyalty, store loyalty anymore. They'll go to your store for 15 years, and as soon as someone else has a better deal, they're at the other store. They don't care about you. (laughs) They don't care about how you stocked your items or how long you've been here or how you help the community. Give them the deal. So customers are very fickle. You can't depend on loyalty anymore. It is how we are at church. It is how we are at church. You, you got to teach nice things. If you, don't, if, you, if you ruffle feathers, they'll go down the block to another church that teaches nice things. And so crowds flock around Jesus all the time. There's a lot of fans of Jesus. They, they collect His sayings and they peek into the Bible once in a while but they just want their own version of Jesus. One thing that Jesus taught on almost more than anything else was the reality of hell. And I remember talking with a couple and they said, you know, we, we love what you teach. And this is a long time ago. We love hearing you teach and all this kind of stuff. But uh, you mentioned about hell. We're not cool with that. Okay. And then the next thing was, so we looked it up. We wanted to see what does the Bible say about hell. And actually, it actually says a lot. <laughs> but we just don't. We just, no, we reject that. And they said, one of the things we like about when you preach is that what you say, we look down on the page and it's there. We love that. And I said, well, like you said, it's there. That's not the version of Jesus we want. A Jesus that will talk about hell a Jesus that would talk about separation from God, a Jesus that would talk about us needing him to die on a cross. Not that Jesus. We just want the Jesus that comes and as a little baby in a manger and angels are singing and then he grows up and teaches us to be good to people. That guy. But they don't want the real Jesus for all that he stands for, for all that he's about. They want their own version of him. So when people ask you, Why do you go to church? Why do you follow Jesus? The first things out of our mouth should not be the earthly blessings, the temporal things. 
he fixed this, he fixed that, he made this nicer, he made that nicer, he makes me feel good, he helps me with New Year's resolutions, he helps me stick to them. The first things out of my mouth is, I deserve to die, and he created a bridge so I can have life again. He took that death for me so I could be connected to God. That's the main thing. Now, it's going to help my marriage. It's going to help me at work to be a better em- employee. It's going to help me out in the world to be a better person. But that, that, that's not seven steps to being a better person. It's salvation from eternal death. That's why you follow Christ. That's why you need Jesus. We need Jesus to be rescued from sin. We need Jesus because we need salvation, not because we need a promotion. We need Jesus because we need a Savior, not like a a fairy godmother, you know, who kind of pops in and waves a wand and gives you some presents to help you fight in this world or give you good tips for living. We need an eternal blessing, not earthly blessings. I do want to make clear God cares about blessings. I mean, you read in the Bible about all kinds of rewards, and God is saying, Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, don't store your treasure on earth, store your treasure in heaven so you get more then. And there's going to come a time where he wants to lavish things and a time where our hearts won't cling to them. We're so stuck on Jesus, but we, now we get to enjoy them the way they're supposed to be enjoyed. And there is going to be healing for every one of us, not just for some people. There's no longer going to be a time where you wonder, how come that person got healed and I didn't get healed? Or how come I'm suffering the sickness and this other person isn't suffering the sickness? No more sickness, no more disease. That's coming. But that's later. Now God lets some of that trickle through. And he decides when that happens and when that doesn't happen. But we don't serve him for the earthly blessings. We serve him for that eternal profound need to be connected to God. And then eventually one day, His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. He will be king. He will usher in his kingdom in full force, in full reign, in full view of everyone, and will enjoy real peace. But that's not our ultimate need. That's an effect of having solved our ultimate need. And that's to know Jesus as our Savior. So, I thought of this. If you had a child, if you have a child, and the child comes up to you, and you ask your child, why do you love me? They might say several things. Why do you love me, sweetheart? Why do you love me? They might say, well, because you provide for me. I get cereal in the morning. I have, I have toys. You make sure I'm bundled up so I go to school. Maybe they don't appreciate that part. But you do things. You're there for me. Um, you're cool, you're a cool dad, uh, you're a cool mom, you take me out, take me on the slides or sledding or whatever. That's not what you really want to hear. That's not what you really want to hear. What you really want to hear is, I love you because you're my dad. I love you because you're my mom. Without you, I wouldn't even exist. I love that I have your eyes. I love that because of you, I'm here. That's what you want to hear. You don't want to hear that, oh, you love me because I give you stuff. You want something a little less conditional than that. And what Jesus is looking for in people to follow him are not people that will shout Hosanna at the right time. Not people who just throw cloaks down. Now we should, we should worship him. We should adulate him, praise him, and, and give him all that he's worth, and we should shout praises. 
But that's not what he's looking for. What he's looking for is what's happening in your heart. And your heart has to come to grips with the fact that you needed a Jesus to come and be a lamb before he can be Lord. So when you read Revelation, this fierce Savior that comes and wipes out wickedness, he's going to be worshipped forever as a lamb, as a lamb who is worthy. What does that mean he's a lamb, that he's cuddly and soft? It means that he was innocent and died in your place. And so therefore he will be worshipped as that for eternity. So when we think of the real reason we come to church, the real reason why we trudge through the snow and and do that extra work of digging ourselves out of the parking lot and and coming to this place, it's not so we could have a couple of feel-good songs. I know you know that. But we want to communicate that to other people too when we invite them to church. What is the real reason? What is the real reason we're talking to them about Jesus? What is the real reason Jesus came in this entry the way he came? Not on our war horse. Not trying to show up the authorities. He came in humility because he had to complete the picture of the gospel. He needed to die for us. He needed to bridge that gap for us. You guys, that's what fuels praise. When you're sick, you still praise him. When you're poor, you can still praise him. Why? Because something is unchanged. Even when your circumstances change, that's your eternal salvation. That's the good news. That's what we proclaim. And that's why we worship him as king. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And as we uh, close in this song, um, let's ask the Lord that we would render uh, worship that is true, honest, sincere, and that he would uh, realign us, if need be, to the real reason why we worship him. So I'd like to ask you, if you're able, to stand and join us as we close in this song.